0: We're going to be reading Matthew uh, 26, 47 through twenty We're going to stand for the reading of God's Word. So would you join us? I'm going to say, I believe this is the most important part of the service. All the parts important, praying God's Word, singing God's Word, hearing God's Word proclaimed. But actually, the reading of God's Word is the one place where we hear God's voice unstained by our uh, our human fallenness. So, so that's why we stand for this portion and hear what God has said. While Jesus was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. And with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should be the scriptures how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? that it must be so. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. you have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his, you have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ! Who is it that struck you? Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. And a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him. She said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately, the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor Then when Judas, the betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. The chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, uh, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as their bury place for strangers. Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled that what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. So that the governor was greatly amazed. Let's be seated as we pray. Father, just hearing your word read, our hearts are already swimming in their truths. We're marked by our King, our Jesus, our Savior. all that occurred to him for our sake. I do ask that by your spirit as we kind of settle into this passage and think on it more deeply, the very truths that are already ruminating in our minds would go deeper into us, grasp, uh, grip us more fully. So we all just collectively ask for your spirit to speak to us. We want to hear from you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. It was just about a month ago that Queen Elizabeth II became the longest reigning queen in the history of the world. It was in 1953 that her coronation took place. How many of you remember the coronation? I won't say you're old, but just joking. It's always good to start off a sermon offending half the people there. Maybe you received a pin or a day off of school. It might have even been the first day, uh, the first time you saw an event live on television, as it was for so many. And there were many traditions associated with it. I was reading up on it and uh, learning a lot. So she had placed on her head a 300-year-old crown that weighed over four pounds. And as it had been taking place, or as it had been for the past 900 years, the coronation took place in Westminster Abbey. And it even started its own tradition, Coronation Chicken. They were trying to figure out how to uh, feed all the foreigners that were going to be there, and a florist named Constance Spry suggested this uh, easy and delicious recipe, and it was accepted, and so was born Coronation Chicken. But perhaps no tradition was more important than the service itself. That's because how you become queen reveals something about who you are and who you intend to be as queen. In the case of Queen Elizabeth, her coronation, her service, had a direct lineage all the way back to King Edgar of Bath from 973. And it included lines like this as she was handed a Bible. Our gracious Queen, to keep Your Majesty ever mindful of the law and the gospel of God as the rule for the whole life and government of Christian princes, we present you with this book, the most valuable thing that this world affords. Or she was given an orb that she held in her hand. And she was told, Receive this orb set under the cross. And remember that the whole world is subject to the power and empire of Christ, our Redeemer. Isn't that beautiful? You're getting a crown placed on your head and you're told you're actually under someone else's rule. I'm not an expert expert analyst of kings and queens by any means, but I would say that the queen has lived up well to these charges. How you become queen or king, as the case may be, reveals something about who you are and who you intend to be as king. I start this morning's sermon with Queen Elizabeth's coronation because our passage today is actually a coronation text going that's not what i got when i read it might seem a little counterintuitive i mean jesus is on trial he's been captured by soldiers he's punched and mocked nearing his death right really a coronation text but we'll look a little bit closer our passage ends right uh at 27 twenty seven, eleven to 14 and what's what's the question on pilate's lips Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus, who's been largely silent, says, You have said so. Kind of backhanded way of affirming the truth. Actually, the first time Jesus broke his silence, back in chapter 26, he said the same things, or same phrase. There again, there are all sorts of accusations heaped against him. He remains silent. But when the high priest says, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God, there in 2664, he says, you have said so. Now the word Christ, it's not just Jesus' last, or it's not Jesus last name. It's a title. It's a title from the Old Testament. That means anointed one. And most prominently, the anointed king, the promised king of the Old Testament. He says, you have said so. But the the thing he says immediately after that is the most telling indication that this is a coronation text. Look there with me at 2664. Jesus said to him, you have said so. And then listen. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So he says, what's going on right now, I'll tell you what's going to happen immediately after this, I'm going to reign. And he's actually quoting here from Daniel chapter 7, which I think it's important for us to look at. So if you would, turn just back in your Bible a little bit to Daniel chapter 7. If you're uh, using the same Bible uh, from the pew there, it's on page 745. background. Daniel, of course, has been captured, carried off into captivity, and, uh, you know, there's the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, where they're the fiery furnace, and there's a the story of him being thrown in the lion's den. Like, this is not a situation where it seems like God's in control, but God, at, toward the end of Daniel, gives Daniel a series of visions that shows that even though it seems like the world is the one that's triumphing God is going to ultimately triumph and this is a crucial vision in that in Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14 I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days that's God the father and was presented before him And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. You see, seated at the right hand of power coming on the clouds, is a reference to this time where he is the one who now has the kingdom. He is ruling over the kingdom. The power has been given to him. And Jesus is saying, from this point, right after this point, that's what's going to be the case. So, Jesus is giving us indications that the way he's viewing these events is this is when he's about to assume his crown. crown. He stays silent amidst all the accusations, but when things are said like, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the Christ, the son of God? He says, you have said so. And then he adds, from now on, you will see me as the fulfillment of all the scriptures, and in particular, Of Daniel 7, because I will be reigning with power from the clouds. This is Jesus' coronation service. But it's interesting that while Jesus is ascending his throne, he isn't the only one who wants to rule. This whole scene is caused and accented by various people who are frantically trying to hold on to the power they have. Look at how the religious leaders behave. They manipulate. They twist. They're doing anything they can just to be rid of this threat to their power. We saw it at his betrayal, right? Jesus even points it out there in uh, in verse 56. He says, look, the way you're going about this proves that this isn't something that you're doing because because you're just. If you were acting with integrity, you would have just going out into the marketplace and grab me or in the synagogues when I'm there. No, the fact that you're doing this in secret proves that you have dubious motives, right? Or then when it describes, I mean, look at what they're trying to do. They're they're trying to find a false witness, it says. And they keep trying, you have to have at least two to agree. So they're getting these false, oh, I'll come and testify against them. And then he tells something, but they can't get anyone to agree. I mean, it's just, it's like a, it's like a comedy, you know? Here they are, frantically trying to find something, Finally, two people agree to say something about Jesus destroying the temple, which he actually said something like that, but he meant something entirely different than what they're suggesting. So they finally get two people to agree, but even in are kind of just clamoring to, we'll take anybody to testify against him. I think it's really interesting. Uh, look at the beginning of chapter 26. Now, we didn't read this. We read it a couple weeks ago. 26, verse 3. The chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. And they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. That's important backdrop. They've already gathered together. They've already decided they're going to arrest him. And they've already decided he's going to be killed. So now they're doing it. And I love it. Jesus says, you know, he says, I'm the fulfillment of Daniel seven, and and the the chief priest, Oh, I tear my clothes. It's blasphemy, blasphemy. They've already decided what was going to happen. It's all a charade. It's all a mockery. Look at look at then at the beginning of chapter twenty-seven. It says, uh, when morning came, so they he's he's uh, you know, he's he said this statement, they say, blasphemy, blasphemy. Then twenty seven, when morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus him to death. Oh, well, we've heard, we've heard his statement. Now, now let's go and decide whether this is something that deserves death. They've already said that's what they're going to do. It's all a charade. What a mockery. And you know what? When they bring him before Pilate and start trumping up their charges, you know, it says there uh, in 2712, he was accused by the chief priests and elders. He gave no answer. We didn't read, but just a little bit ahead, we get Pilate's assessment of what's going on. He sees through the whole rouge. Look at verse 18. He knew that it was out of envy that they delivered him up. They're pretty bad actors. They're lame. Pilate sees right through what's going on. They're grasping for anything they can. So you have these leaders feverishly doing anything they can to hang on to their power. What a contrast to Jesus. Jesus. They're clamoring, clinging, trying to grab on. He just walks calmly through the whole thing. He knows who is in control. He knows who will win. He knows how these moments had been written of long ago in God's holy book. So there's no fighting there's no clamoring, no calling down legions of angels as he said he could do, no whipping his disciples into an armed frenzy. He quietly walks through it all. Now, I did go back and watch a little bit of the coronation service of Queen Elizabeth. She has that same calm because she knows exactly what's going to happen, the whole script is in her mind. She knows that there's no threat. And so there's a calm and stability to everything that's going on as she receives it. You see the, the two pictures? Man grasping for power. I, I got to hold on to it. We got to do this to get Jesus. What do we get? Gonna... And Jesus, silent, ascending his throne for real. Reminds me of Psalm 2. Where it says, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed or against his Christ. Saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And then it says, he who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. This is no contest. Jesus is walking calmly. Those who think they have authority continue to grasp desperately for it while the one who has real authority calmly and quietly assumes his throne. Much to the chagrin and I would say surprise of the religious leaders, this is Jesus' coronation service. But let's not lose sight of what's going on here. When we read this, when I first read through it on my own, preparing for the sermon, I didn't think, oh, the coronation service. Because this is a story of his trial that's going to lead up to his ultimate death. I mean, this is the one where we hear about him being spat on and hit and mocked. I mean, we know what's coming for Jesus. Hours and hours of of torture. And then hanging in agony on a cross and then ultimately suffocating to death as he gives up his spirit. Matthew knows that's where it's going, and he knows his readers know where that's going, and so when he tells us that Jesus says from now on he'll be at the right hand of power, raining from the clouds, it begs a question. Why is Jesus' path to a crown a path of suffering. It's there in such stark contrast. When you read 2664, you should be going, What? What did he say? It makes no sense. It's one of the many times in scripture where scriptures just grab you by the collar and shake you and say, Are you seeing this? There's something going on here. He is on trial facing facing a death sentence. And yet he's declaring that at the next moment, he will reign as king. Well, remember what we said at the beginning. How you become king reveals something about who you are and who you intend to be as king. So the fact that Jesus will become king through his suffering, death, and resurrection Tells us something significant about who he is. But but what is it? What is it that that's getting at? And I think Matthew gives us a crucial clue in the backdrop that surrounds the story. Because in Matthew's account, and I'd say uniquely in Matthew's account, we get an up-close look at what a broken world we live in. Think about it. It begins, our, our passage begins, with one of his 12 closest friends betraying him over to death with a kiss. We're told not too long into the story that that group of his closest friends all abandon him in his time of deepest need. His friends aren't there for him. And we're told the story of his most outspoken follower, Peter, who flatly denies him, swearing in an oath that he has no association with Jesus. And perhaps, most vividly we see the rampant corruption from religious and civic leaders. I mean, we've already talked about how their clear self-interest leads them to crucify an innocent man. Great miscarriage of justice. But do you notice how Matthew alone tells us the story about Judas here? None of the other Gospels include this. In 27, 3-10... to Judas sees all that's going on and he gets that pit in his stomach. This isn't right. And he realizes he's betrayed an innocent man so he comes back. Well, they treat him like dirt. Their trusted informant. The one who's leading them to Jesus who's their hired man. He served his purpose. Now kick him to the curb. And then, throws the silver on the ground, runs out, and kills himself. And they're more concerned about what to do with the money than they are what to do this man has just taken his life. And this is the kind of backward brokenness we see in the leadership of the world right even the irony like it was the way they understood the law they couldn't take this money and put it into the temple because money given to someone for hire to do something evil was an abomination it was blood money <laughs> we can't take that they're the ones who paid in that money do they not get it like they're doing something wrong here so when you read stories about corruption in high levels of government or in levels of religiosity and you say, that just seems so dumb. It's the kind of thing that went on back then too. And then this depressing picture of Judas. Jesus said, woe to him, woe to him who betrays me. It would be better if he was never born. He feels some level of regret and guilt and shame. He doesn't turn to Jesus in repentance. Instead, he's overwhelmed by his guilt and shame. He kills himself. Takes his own life. Matthew doesn't want us to miss the point that we live in a broken, sin-stained world. Jesus isn't the only one to have been let down by his friends, even betrayed by those who he loves the most. Jesus isn't the only one to have been denied justice because those in power were corrupt. The priests of Jesus' day were not the last priests to do terribly wicked things. In service of themselves. And Judas was not the last to despair so much that he took his own life. I've stood in hospital rooms and held the hands of those who'd attempted to take their own life. I've counseled a former pastor after he was arrested sexually abusing a minor. I've sat in the living room when a husband confronted his wife about her infidelity. And I have let down friends, failing them when they needed me most. This is our world. It's your world, isn't it? We can try to sanitize it, clean it up, sweep it under the rug. We're all good people. We know it's an illusion. We go to bed crying because we hate being a mom or being a wife, even while our Facebook page suggests domestic peace we're known as a great Christian man but nobody knows that thing we do when nobody's watching or maybe we've never spoken of the abuse we've suffered or the abortion we had that is times when often we are the victim of the brokenness of this world. I think that the Bible tells a truer story than the story we are willing to tell ourselves. And that is, even the good ones are bad. We see that here in the backdrop to Jesus' coronation. Even the good ones are bad. And that is what gives us the crucial clue to understanding why Jesus' path to His crown was a path that involved suffering and death and then His resurrection. See what Matthew, and I'd say, do you see what the Holy Spirit has done as He's woven together this story for us? He gives us these clues, these grab-you-by-the-collar clues. Jesus is saying He's coming in power on the clouds that beg the question, well, if he's, if, he's going, if he's going to the throne, if this is when He assumes His crown, why does it happen through suffering and death? You know, in a certain sense, Jesus was always the king in a certain sense, right? He created the world. He has authority over it. He says, I could bring my legions and boom, they could wipe out the Roman Empire. He had the authority before this. But he's not just asserting his authority. He is actually... Becoming the king of a broken world. Of a world racked by sin. You know, he could be the king without this. But he couldn't be my king without that. Because I'm part of this broken, messed up, sin-stained world. So he can have his kingdom, but a sinner like me must be excluded from it. But he wanted to be my king and your king and the redeemer of all that is broken and foul. And in order to be that kind of king, he had to go to the cross so that he could take our penalty upon himself. Elsewhere, the scripture said, he who knew no sin on the cross became Sin for us. So that in Him, we could have the righteousness of God. That's what He's doing. And Matthew has been giving us those hints all along. you got to do a little bit of flipping with me. To the beginning of Matthew, chapter 1. It's announced that Jesus is going to be born. In verse 21. She'll bear a son, and she shall call his name Jesus. Why? The very announcement of his birth. For he will save his people from their sins. Now look ahead at chapter 9. Verses 11 and 12. He's hanging out with people of ill repute, sinners. And when the Pharisees, it says, verse 11, saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are of well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. See what he's coming to do? deal with those who are us who are broken. Look at chapter 20. Chapter 20 verse 28. 20:28 20, 28 said, "The Son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many." And then look again at 26 twenty eight at the Lord's table or at the when he first institutes the Lord's Supper at the Passover feast in twenty six twenty-eight he says This cup is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. He could he was king. But in order for Him to redeem the fallen world and be the king of you and me, He had to go by way of the cross. To wear the crown, to wear that crown, He had to take sin upon Himself and pay our penalty. You see, how you become king reveals something about who you are and the kind of king you will be. Jesus is the kind of king who looks out at a broken, fallen world, a sin-stained world, and says, I want to be their king. And the only way for him to be our king is the path of the cross. Let's pray. Father. Thank you. Thank you that you didn't spare your son. it gave him for us. To redeem us. Thank you that we. Sinners. Can be part of God's good kingdom, your good kingdom. Thank you for Jesus. Amen.